Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, you and I are not Israelites living under the law of Moses. And we aren't commanded to evaluate prophets or prophetic announcements. But today, instead of evaluating prophets, we're told, the New Testament tells us, that we are to evaluate Bible teachers to determine if they are true to the Word of God or if they are false teachers. Welcome to Verse by Verse. That's Pastor Steve Kreloff we just heard, courageously urging us to evaluate not just every Bible teacher's teaching, but even his own. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, and he is leading us in a series of lessons about the dangers of false teachers. Do you ever wonder if your doctor's medical degree is real? I don't. My doctor is very skilled and caring, but there are thousands of practitioners in the U.S. who do not have genuine medical degrees. One estimate I read put it at more than 5000 I also read that you can buy a medical degree for as little as $10,000. Sounds scary? Well, it is to me. Who knows how many people have died needlessly at the hands of fake doctors. But you know what's even scarier than fake doctors? It's fake Bible teachers. They have led countless people to an eternity of agony. Determining if your doctor is legitimate or not is not all that easy. But knowing if a Bible teacher is legitimate is actually easier than it might seem. The Apostle Peter wrote about it in one of his epistles. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Here's Pastor Steve with today's Bible lesson. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. We want to continue in our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful letter. Strong letter, but necessary for us to understand. And we want to break in actually the second line of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. We're only going to look at uh, parts of two verses. The second line says in verse 13, They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. If we were Israelites living in the era of the Old Testament, and we discovered that one of our Sunday school teachers or pulpit teachers was a false prophet. You know what we'd have to do? According to Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, the law of Moses would command us to kill that person. Capital punishment for being a false teacher. But how are the Jewish people to know who was a false prophet? Because uh, that's a very serious thing, and, and you have to have some hard evidence. You don't go around accusing people of being a false prophet and just killing them because you suspect that they might be a false prophet. And so God gave the Jewish people direction, the very next verse in Deuteronomy 18, on how to determine if a man was a false prophet. He said, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, the way to spot a false prophet is if his prophecy doesn't come to pass because God is truth and whatever he says 
will happen. And if somebody says they represent God and they predict something that doesn't happen, then obviously he's a false prophet. Now, you and I are not Israelites living under the law of Moses. And we aren't commanded to evaluate prophets or prophetic announcements. But today, instead of evaluating prophets, we're told, the New Testament tells us, that we are to evaluate Bible teachers to determine if they are true to the word of God or if they are false teachers. Now, how do we evaluate a present-day Bible teacher? Well, the New Testament, and I would note this, God, were you? The New Testament gives us two specific tests to determine if someone is a genuine teacher or is a false teacher. The first test is what I would call the doctrinal test. Doctrinally, do they preach the gospel? That is, do they preach those things that are essential for salvation? We can disagree with many people on such things as the mode of baptism or some prophetic issues, but anyone who who is presenting a gospel that that is not of God's grace and is off on the essentials of salvation is a false teacher. What would we mean by that? Those would include such doctrines, for example, as the deity and the, and the humanity of Christ. If they're off on that, they're a false teacher because that is essential to understanding what salvation means. You have to be right on the person and work of Christ. And that would include the atonement on the cross. If somebody is off on the atonement, uh, then they are false, uh, they are false teacher. Uh, Christ's resurrection from the dead, salvation that he offers by grace, alone, and you want to make sure that they understand what grace is about, not just using that terminology. And uh, this is why there are such strong statements in the New Testament concerning those who present a different Jesus and a different gospel. Different than what? Different than the one that was presented by the apostles in the New Testament. For example, in 1 John, you'll turn back just a few books to 1 John chapter 2, John made some very startling statements about false teachers. First John chapter 2, John who preached a lot about love, and John who was a, a man who leaned upon the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, yet John said some very strong things about false teachers. He said in First John chapter 2, verse 22, notice this. He says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Who is the one lying, he says, the one who stands up and says that Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the Christ. God has not sent him. John says this is the Antichrist, not meaning this is the one who's going to take his seat in the temple, but this is the very spirit of Antichrist. This is, this is what it's all about, denying the Christ, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. So if somebody teaches you... Um, erroneously about Jesus Christ and said he is not fully God. He did not fully, uh, he is not fully man. John says he is not of the father. He is a false teacher. He is antichrist. Then one book later in second John, John wrote three epistles. He wrote the gospel of John as well as the book of Revelation. But in second John verse seven, he says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Do not acknowledge that God became a man. This, he says, is the deceiver and antichrist. And then I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Perhaps the strongest language ever used in, in all the Bible for denouncing those who preach another gospel. 
In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, and by the way, the Galatians, this is the only epistle in which Paul had nothing good to write about the people. Even to the uh, Corinthians who had been involved in carnality, Paul had some good things to say to them, but not to the Galatians. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. And you'll see what I mean. Galatians 1 verse 6, Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul says, you are deserting the truth of the gospel that you first heard from me for a different gospel. He says, and let me clarify in verse 7, which is really not another. I mean, there's no other gospel. He said, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of grace. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That means he is to be condemned to hell forever. That's what that word means, anathema. As we have said before, so say I again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you uh, received, he is to be accursed. Paul said, the gospel that I preached to you was the true gospel. He'll go on to say, God revealed it to him. It is the true gospel. Anybody who comes along, even if an angel comes along and says something contrary to what the gospel of grace is, he is to be accursed. He is a false teacher. He is condemned. He is a, he is a, a child of hell. He goes on in chapter 3 beginning at verse 1, to explain what is it the gospel that they were being exposed to. Folks, this is the same gospel uh, or, or perversion of the gospel that we're being exposed to today. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? They'd actually been bewitched. This is, this is demonic. This is the only thing he said, I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? That is to say, when the gospel first came to you and you received Christ and you received the Holy Spirit, was it a message of faith or did you have to do something for it? Was it works or was it faith? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, it was by faith. He says in verse three, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, you're so foolish. You began this walk by faith. You received Christ by faith. Why are you going into the law now? Why do you think it's necessary to keep the law? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So then does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he, he, he cuts through all of history back to Abraham. He says, even so, he's quoting from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He says, listen, this is the way it's always been. It has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. And this is what Abraham experienced. He believed God and God declared him righteous. That's justification. Didn't mean that he became righteous. It means that his status in heaven is righteous. And that's true of anyone who comes to faith in Christ. See, these folks were being told that they needed to keep the law of Moses to be saved. They needed to add it to their faith. And so what they were really being taught, that justification was not by faith alone, but by faith and works. And whenever you take works and put it with faith, it is always works, always works. Paul says that anyone teaching salvation by works is under God's curse. They are a false teacher. I mentioned that Michelle and I were in California 
uh, the other week, and it was a wonderful conference. I was not the only speaker. Michelle had one session with the uh, with the women, but uh, the featured speaker was Phil Johnson, who has spoken here. Phil is the uh, executive director of Grace to You, John MacArthur's uh, outreach ministry. He's the editor of uh, of most of John's books, and Phil spoke on ecumenicism, and his emphasis was, "What is the gospel?" What is the gospel? It's not what we're being told by all different groups. The gospel is justification by faith alone. And one of the things he told us very interestingly is that uh, he gave a wonderful exposition of Romans chapter 3 and said that if you speak to someone who's well-versed in, in Catholic uh, theology, they will tell you that Martin Luther added, and I think it's Romans 3.28, which says that we're justified by by faith in, in Christ and redemption, they will tell you that Luther added the word alone to the, uh, the text. And you know what? That's true. He did. He, uh, he added the word alone, but, uh, he was not wrong in doing that because as you read Romans 3, that is exactly what Paul is talking about. It is not by works of the law. It is by faith. And though, and though Paul being inspired by the Spirit of God did not put the word alone there, that's the thought. That's obviously the thought. Well, on the, uh, on the airplane coming back to, uh, to Florida, actually to Atlanta from, uh, from California, I sat next to, uh, an older woman, very nice woman, and, um, I engaged her in conversation. And, uh, turns out she is a lay leader in the Carmelite order of the Roman Catholic Church. This lady could have been an apologist for, uh, for the Vatican, and she was extremely well versed in Catholic doctrine. And uh, she said to me, as I was witnessing to her, she said, uh, you know, Martin Luther added the word alone. And, and you know, I didn't want to get into a whole thing. But I, I said to her, I said, you know what? Um, cutting across everything, what did Abraham discover? Abraham, I told her, was justified, the scriptures say, by faith alone, by faith alone. And uh I shared with her a little bit of my testimony, but it was more important about Abraham's testimony. You know what she said to me? She said that Abraham was not justified by faith alone, but by faith and good works. And she told me that uh, her baptism and her good works were necessary for salvation. This is what she clearly believed. You see, that is the same error taught by the false teachers to the Galatians. And those who teach such heresies, Paul says they are damned by God. They are not true believers. They are not true believers, but they are ambassadors of Satan. That is, that it is the gospel at stake. It is not a minor point. It is the heart of, of salvation. So the very first test of a, of a teacher is the doctrinal test. Do they preach the gospel? Don't assume people do that. Do they preach the gospel? Those things that are essential to salvation. There is a second test, and that is the behavioral test. The behavioral test. Does their behavior reflect a real change in their lives? That is to say that uh, does their behavior reflect uh, somewhat of the character of Jesus Christ? Are there evidences of regeneration? And that's what Second Peter chapter 2 is about. You're probably wondering, how is he going to get to Second Peter 2? That's what it's about, because in this chapter, Peter exposes the, the evil lifestyle of false teachers. His, his emphasis, in fact, throughout his whole epistle, is not on the error of those who were threatening the readers of, of, of Second Peter. It's not on the error, although he touches on that. It's on their lifestyle. 
It's on their way of being a test to see whether someone is a true teacher or not. And Peter's readers were exposed to false teachers who had actually come into their churches and were teaching erroneous doctrine and living uh, in, in such a way that was evil, but they were covering it up for the most part. And Peter wanted to expose them. And that's what chapter two is about. He exposes them and their pretense of piety so that people could see what they are really like. They are not righteous. They are ungodly. See, instead of of killing false prophets as the Israelites under law were told to do, what do we do if we discover in the church that somebody is a false teacher? Well, obviously we don't kill them. I hope you know that. We don't kill them. But uh, the Bible says that we are to shun them. Romans chapter 16, verses 17, 18, turn away from them. We are to discipline them. We are not to have fellowship with them. In fact, Titus tells us you warn somebody once, twice. If they don't repent and change their, their doctrine, their behavior, you, you have nothing to do with them. In fact, Paul was so emphatic about this, he bypassed the formula in Matthew chapter 18 for church discipline, which has a few more steps in it. He said, no, you just once or twice, if they're a heretic uh, and they don't, they don't repent to that, you put them out. So very, very strong words. But before we can turn away from false teachers, we first need to identify them. Who are they? And that's what Second Peter 2 is about because the apostle Peter rips off these people's religious masks and exposes them for what they really are. They are evil in their outward behavior and their inward motivations. Now, up to this point in our study of Second Peter, we've seen several truths, actually three major truths about the true character of false teachers. And we're really in a... Uh, uh, sort of a, a sub-series within the whole series of Second Peter, which I've entitled The Truth About False Teachers. That's because that's the spirit of Second Peter. What's the truth? What are they really like? Well, what we've seen, first of all, according to verse 10, they are morally impure. He says, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. They are morally impure. Generally speaking, that's the case because they have no Holy Spirit indwelling them. They cannot say no to sensual temptations. They have no power to do that. Secondly, they despise authority because Peter says right at the, right after speaking about indulging the flesh, he said they despise authority. And it means that they despise the authority of Jesus Christ in their lives. And that would apply to any authority Christ has put over their lives. They're going to do their own thing, and they don't want anybody telling them what to do. We also saw that they are extremely arrogant. He says in verse 10, they are daring self-will. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. And we interpreted that to mean that they are arrogant to the point that they're not afraid to slander uh, Satan and uh, fallen angels. They talk very light of Satan. There's, there's no respect for Satan. Obviously, we shouldn't honor him, but we ought to have a respect for him. And uh, no, they, they had this sort of proud arrogance about them that they could slander him and say whatever they wanted, and that was all right. Now, this morning, as we continue studying this chapter, we're going to discover one more important truth about false teachers, and that is they are pleasure seekers. Note that. So all we're going to look at this morning as we explain the text, they are pleasure seekers. As we get into verse 13, it says in the second line, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. As Peter continues to reveal the true character of false teachers, he states something that ought to be startling to us. Your uh, Bibles may translate this a little bit differently, but in whatever translation you use, it ought to startle you. 
because he states that these men who were bothering his readers were so bold in their evil ways that they actually carried them out in broad daylight. That's the startling thing. What exactly were they doing? Well, the the uh, Greek word that Peter uses for pleasure that's translated in my uh, Bible as, as pleasure is the word from which we get our English word hedonist. A hedonist is an individual who lives only for pleasure. Hedonistic ways. That, listen, that's our culture. Whatever makes me happy, that's all that counts. That's pretty much the culture that, that, we, that we live in. Hedonistic culture. That's the word here. In other words, these false teachers were pleasure seekers who lived a lifestyle of self-indulgence in broad daylight for everyone to see. That's what Peter is saying. Now, specifically, what they did, Peter doesn't spell it out for us. However, Knowing what we know about the culture of Peter's day, their hedonistic ways would certainly have to include immorality and drunkenness. There's no way that he's not thinking of of at least that. And the word that's actually translated uh, rebel or carousing in this verse also carries with it the thought of softness, of of luxury, of extravagance. These are the things that bring pleasure to people. That's, That's the thought here. So Peter is painting a picture of a false teacher as an individual who lives to feel good and behaves in a way that ordinarily is reserved for nighttime. And notice how Peter phrases his statement in verse 13. He says, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. It's not that the apostle is suggesting that carousing at night is acceptable. He's not doing that at all. It's just the fact that immorality and drunkenness are usually committed under the cover of darkness. Why? So that it can be hidden from the sight of others. That's why Jesus said in John 3.19 that men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. They don't want it exposed, so they do it under the cover of darkness. What we know about the, the degenerate and wicked culture of, of Peter's day was that it was a, a culture given over to uh, horrible behavior. However, this kind of stuff was frowned upon doing it in daylight. Yes, they did it at night, but even in this, this degenerate culture, they still frowned upon this kind of behavior in broad daylight. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, Paul says, hey, we're of the day, we're of the night. People who get drunk, he said, get drunk at night. I mean, it's just a truism. They don't do that in the daytime. That would be very, very odd. In fact, it's very interesting. Do you remember the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God, came in a very unique way, and uh, the apostles as well as the others in that church all spoke in, in languages, and uh, which we call tongues. And uh, remember what the, what the men were accused of, the people were accused of? That they're drunk, they said. Well, they weren't drunk, but it's interesting that Peter says, listen, how could we be drunk? It's only nine in the morning. It's only nine in the morning. He says it's the third hour, nine in the morning. So we're not drunk, and even if we were, we, this is absurd. Nobody gets drunk nine in the morning in our day and age. See, that just shows you a little bit of the culture. They did that stuff at night. But the false teachers of Peter's day carried on immoral practices and drunken revelry even during the daytime. That's what's so incredible. Wow, that sounds just like a description of our present culture. What used to be done in secret to avoid condemnation is now done not only openly, but proudly. But as we'll hear on our next verse-by-verse, Peter wasn't talking about what we might call everyday debauchery. Uh, If you read carefully, it seems to mean that their immorality was actually taking place during the Lord's Supper of all times. 
Pastor Steve will develop that more fully in our next broadcast. This is Verse by Verse. I'm glad you joined us today for another in our series of lessons about the dangers of false teachers. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Verse by Verse is an outreach ministry of Lakeside. They also have a fine Christian school. You can find out more at lakesidechapel.com. For more information about Verse by Verse or to listen to previous broadcasts, browse on over to versebyverseradio.org. Those two sites again are lakesidechapel.com and versebyverseradio.org. Here's another website, especially for our visually impaired listeners. It's blindbibles.com. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and would like a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit blindbibles.com. The phone number again is 800-838-5924. This is your announcer, Jerry Peterson. I imagine you've heard the term poker face. Someone with a poker face doesn't give away what they are thinking by their facial expression. The opposite is a tell. A tell is an expression or gesture that other players might notice, which gives a clue about how the player feels about their hand. While they can be very deceptive, false teachers also have a tell that gives them away. 